0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. When they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The kind of mourning the prophet Zechariah describes in this morning's reading is an intensely personal sorrow, constricting and intensifying, as Jerusalem mourns by tribe, household, family. And then finally, the wives by themselves, mourning over the one whom they have pierced. The prophet likens this this repentant grief to a mother mourning over her child. When you have a child, there goes your heart. You are one with that child. What happens to your child happens to you. This is the morning Zechariah describes. As Israel has pierced this one, so each of them is pierced to the depths of their being. This is universal and particular, it's collective and individual. We see something similar in today's gospel a constriction, an intensification of engagement as Jesus asks his disciples. Who do the crowd say that I am? Then, who do you say that I am? Then Jesus moves to the individual. He intensifies the challenge, the bittersweet cost of knowing who Jesus is. And this knowing not as an intellectual assent, but as an act of obedience. We obey our King. If anyone comes after me in an act of complete allegiance, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is yet another of the jarring paradoxes so characteristic of our relationship with Christ. Going after Jesus means denying ourselves so that Jesus can give us our true selves. And this is the bittersweet paradox of life in Christ. We have to die to live And more than that, we have to die to who we think we are, who we want to be, so that we become who we we really are, who God has created us to be. Jesus' marketing message is terrible. Come and die with me, and his brand is death. I mean, if we don't stick with him and allow him to stick with us, we'll never see the life beneath and beyond the death. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you ever heard that? It's often not the plan we want. Denying self, death to self, is symbolized by the cross, is impossibly hard, and involves, I think, a certain amount of bitterness, of suffering and mourning the loss of whoever we think we are, so Jesus can give us a self we, we truly want, who we truly are. And that bitterness, as any, any chef knows, is one of the essential components of the medley of taste receptors on the tongue. And so in life, if sweet all the time, all pleasure, no pain, well, our lives would be pretty insipid. And our souls, they would become diabetic, weak, listless. Jesus asks us to die to self so we can raise up the self. Dying to self involves the cross, the grave, and the strong life that emerges from the dying. This is the abundant life that flows from a resurrected self that Jesus gives us. But we have to die to get there. Through mourning, through tears of affliction and bitterness, of realization that instead of dying to self, we have often tried to pierce the one who loves us and gives us life. And it's that we must repent of. And repentance is a strong and bitter medicine. The death is also always and necessarily an intensely personal affair because each of us has an intensely personal relationship with Jesus, lived out within the community of Jesus. And this is not the saccharine relationship that Mark Knoll warns against in his books, you know, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind and others. I mentioned Mark because I just wanted to hear him at... Uh, at Windsor Palace there, no, what is that, uh, you know, that place? Um, It was wonderful. Um, Whereby we retreat into some pious inner sanctum with the idol we call my own personal Jesus. It is intensely personal in the sense that it is particular and unique to each of us, our relationship with Jesus, because love in its primary sense is always directed to a person, to this man, that woman, this child and their uniqueness, and this personal rather than generic love, is also the most demanding. The one who loves me the most demands the most from me, all of me, all of you. And if our love for Jesus is not intensely personal, intimate, challenging, and impossibly difficult, it will default to whatever the crowd says Jesus is, Jesus de jour going with what the crowd says. We call this populism. If my own personal Jesus stops blessing my agenda for my life, I will join up with the crowd who lines up with my agenda. And this is the crowd that will remain pro-Jesus as long as that Jesus aligns with their agenda. But will become violently opposed to the Jesus who offered, who taught, and lived out the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. The hungry, those who mourn, the persecuted, the Beatitudes, which Jesus presents as another way, another path, a deeper sacrifice, a higher serenity. David Brooks, in a sermon he preached at the National Cathedral on July 5th, 2020, wrote this. Jesus walked into a complex network of negotiated and renegotiated power settlements between various factions, and he challenged them all with a stroke. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say, he pierced through them and went right to the core. At a moment of elite polarization, he was bringing access to the kingdom directly to the poor. He was offering triumph directly to the downtrodden. He fit in with none of these factions and plowed through them all. Jesus was love and beauty in the midst of muck and violence and the most difficult circumstances imaginable. This is the Jesus who invites the disciples to follow him, to take up the cross, die to self, even as he did. Because God never asks us to do for Jesus what Jesus has not already done for us. And we are invited to allow God to replace the idol of Jesus we have placed on the throne of ourselves, in the kingdom of ourselves. Replace that with a Jesus who is love and beauty in the midst of the muck and the violence and impossibly difficult circumstances. This Jesus has to capture our hearts. This Jesus, who is love and beauty, invites us into his identity so that we are filled with love and beauty. And in that process, Jesus does not give us a transcendent identity, but he deepens our being, our substance that, that Father James talked about last week as with the trinity whom we image. This is a substance that does not cancel our personhood, but makes us our own persons and not imposters. In Galatians, Paul says that in this loving and beautiful Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, which means that our identity in Christ supersedes all other identifiers, whether they be ethnicity, social status, or gender or any other thing by which we identify ourselves. And some argue that, I read some, well, commentators have said that Paul is trying to abolish identity by converting all of us to Christianity, as if the Christian religion becomes our primary identity. We had someone over to the house the other day to help us with some financial documents. And um, this guy wanted to establish rapport, gain our trust. After finding out I was a priest, he immediately said, I'm a Christian too. I was more interested in his competence as a financial advisor. (laughs) It's not that we're not Christian or Jew or Gentile or servant or CEO, man or woman. It's just that we don't lead with these identifiers. We lead rather with the dearest, freshest, deep down selves that Christ has given to us. I recently received an Amazon gift card from members of our home group who know me pretty well. In the accompanying note, they wrote, Rob, thank you for being you. I thought, well, that's nice, but could I have a little bit more? (laughs) A good guy, a clever fellow, newly ordained priest, a Mr. Wonderful, I don't know. (laughs) But I also realized this might be the supreme expression of gratitude, that I am simply me. And I trust that my time with Jesus and with Jesus and others has made me more me. When Jesus says, I am the way, he's not saying that he is the way to heaven. He is telling us that he is the way to his Father who loves us, whose nature is to give and not to take. Because the one who is all-powerful does not need to empower himself at our expense. What God the creator gives us is our full created selves, our restored selves. I love the verse in Zephaniah 3.17, he exalts over us. So we don't need to exalt over ourselves. But when we don't know or believe that this is what God in Christ does for us and gives to us, if we do not know that he is the source of our identity, we will seek it and try to acquire it elsewhere. You can gain the whole world, Jesus says, and lose your soul. If you've lived for any length of time, you know what it is to lose what you have or not get what you want to have. And Sometimes it takes losing these things or not getting them to realize it's not what we really want because they won't give us ourselves. All they do is provide the illusion of being a somebody and not a nobody. We all want to be a somebody. And even if we have everything, the whole world, we will have nothing if we don't have ourselves. I recently read a piece about the writer James Patterson, uh, the world's best-selling author. You know how many books he sold? I'll tell you. More than 400 million copies. (laughs) He recently wrote an autobiography in which he admits in a moment of candor, My entire life, I honestly have no idea who the blank I am. It's still that way. I look at myself as just another idiot wandering planet Earth with no real idea what makes the world go round, and no particular identity, just another lost soul. And then the writer of the article says, this is perhaps the most forlorn aspect of James Patterson, that a man so relentlessly bullish on storytelling seems never to have formulated the story of his own life. I don't know if that's entirely fair, but that's what this guy wrote. But I realize when God invites us into the story of Jesus, we co-write our story with God, and it's a marvelous story of dying to self and our meager plans for ourselves and coming to life as a part of God's greater plan and purpose for the entire world. And his purpose is not only to save the world, but to establish his kingdom in the world. If we can gain the world and lose our souls, the converse is true. We can lose the whole world and gain our souls. And with it, a kingdom. The kingdom of God is in your midst," Luke later says to Pharisees, to the Pharisees. And some early church fathers understood this to mean that the kingdom of God is within you. And scholars disagree saying, "Oh no, that's too narrow and selfish, as if the kingdom of God is an exclusively inner and private possession of individual believers. But I think the early church fathers are onto something. Because the king who has inaugurated his kingdom is within us. And when Jesus gives us our souls, he is the king who comes with it. And when the king is in you, you serve the king and not yourself. So, when you feel like you're dying, being dismantled, good. God is establishing his kingdom in your heart. When you feel the world is dying, take heart. God is establishing his kingdom in this world that seems like it's being torn apart. And what a relief to know that I don't have to be king, that there's only one king who knows what he's doing, and I am his servant. As Bob Dylan tells it, you may be an ambassador to England or France, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that servant is the real you, the self God meant you to be. We serve Christ and follow him to a place none of us can comprehend until we're there. And as we serve and follow, we trust God and we trust one another. And I suppose our entire pilgrimage is getting to this point of surrender, this place of God's rest. And when we want to harden and protect ourselves against this process of dying to self, God says, enter into my rest. And we are continually turning and returning to this place of rest by daily dying to self and living into the person God is calling us to be, drawn up into the larger identity of God's people and drawn up into the larger identity of God's purpose. In late 2019, before it seemed the gates of hell opened upon this church and did not prevail against it, I taught a catechesis on Ephraim the Syrian He was in our Anglican calendar, commemorated uh, Ephraim, Ephraim just this past week. And I talked about Ephraim's depicting Christ, both his person and his work, as the medicine of life, which goes down as bitter as the vinegar Jesus drank on the cross. There was no spoonful of sugar. Christ's hidden presence in the Eucharistic bread and cup is for Ephraim, the medicine of life, whereby the cup of God's wrath is also the grape of mercy. Where there is sin, where there is mourning, the bitterness of guilt and shame and loss, there is a fountain open for the house of David. Look at the front of your bulletin there. Jim Leonard put that piece on there. That's Jim Leonard's artwork, and Brad McCarthy placed it on there, designed it. Where there is sin, mourning, bitterness of guilt, and shame and loss, there is a fountain open for the house of David. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Ephraim writes, Christ's body has newly been mingled with our bodies. His blood, too, has been poured out into our veins. His voice has been in our ears. His brightness in our eyes. In his compassion, the whole of him has been mingled in with the whole of us. So where does God draw me, you, all of us together? He draws us to himself. And not just to himself, but into himself. We are all together in Christ, and Christ is in us. And that is the hope of glory. Amen.